It is a joy to greet you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a delight these, this week has been for me. Thank you to those responsible for your invitation to come and share with you. I have heard, I had heard of prairie with a hearing of my ear. Now my eye sees you. That's out of the book of Job, you know. Only I've adapted it. And I am delighted with what I see God doing at this place. May the Lord's good hand be upon you all. I'm so grateful to the hospitality that you and your leaders, Mark, uh, and others have shown. This has been absolutely delightful. I'm also delighted to see where my daughter Carmen is. That is how we view our students. They are our children. I'm so happy that they're all over the world proclaiming the gospel. And to see her here in this place is really, really special. Take good care of her. Treat her well. Give her freedom to spread her wings and inspire you with her godliness and her teaching. And pray for her. Don't forget to pray for one another. Pray for all your faculty. We never come to the place where we don't need one another's prayers. We have not arrived, so it's been a great joy. I will go home with a new enthusiasm for what God is doing in my country. I've always said, I've said for many years, if I could be doing in this country what I've been doing south of the border, I would have been here a long time ago. And my heart has been here, and it's good to come back home. We have one more session to talk about, and that is, why is recovery of the First Testament important for Christian faith? So what? Well, I'm going to begin my discussion of the so what by looking at one more important uh, uh, key to the First Testament being resurrected in our lives once again. And, and I call for the ripping out of that page in the Bible, not simply to say that both Testaments are our Scripture, but to emphasize that both Testaments tell one story. And I think that's what we need to learn, and I hope we get that this morning. So what? The importance of recovering the First Testament for evangelical faith. Can the First Testament live again? Yesterday I offered six important prescriptions for recovering the living and life-giving message of the First Testament in our day. And so let me review them again. Can these bones live? Well, in order for that to happen, we need to recover Jesus' own disposition toward the First Testament scriptures. We need to recover the apostles' disposition toward the First Testament scriptures. We need to recover the disposition of the early post-apostolic church fathers toward the First Testament scriptures. We need to join the scribal order of Ezra, setting our hearts to study 
the scriptures, to apply the scriptures, and then to share the scriptures with others. Five, with Jesus we need to recognize the unity of all scripture as the record of God's revelation that climaxes in his incarnation, his ministry, his death and resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of Jesus. And six, we need to rethink our nomenclature, what we call stuff. Again, I'm not expecting all of you to buy into everything I say. I have said before that you should never go back home and say, Block says. What Block says doesn't matter. Our watchword is sola scriptura. What the scripture says. So may I plead with you, please, be Bereans, checking the scriptures always to see whether this be so what I am saying. It's not because I say it that makes it important to the extent that I am speaking the truth of scripture. It's the scripture that determines its importance. But of course, we are working in the Bible, and we are working largely, we have been working largely in the First Testament. And if you're working in the First Testament, every complete presentation will have seven points. And so today, I'm offering you my number seven. This is the climactic one, and I am convinced it is the biggest problem to the First Testament coming back to life for the church. We need to rethink our interpretation of Paul and his disposition toward the law, which we then extend to the whole Pentateuch, which we then extend to the whole First Testament. And we are uh, at that place. I will spend most of my time this morning developing number seven. When we have grasped this principle, we will recognize why recovering the First Testament is important for evangelical faith. Indeed, we should be eager and excited to make it an essential part of our devotional Bible reading, our serious study of the Scriptures, our proclamation and sharing with our neighbors, and making it part of our very lives. But Paul's negative comments about the law are the problem. They are well known. Paul says, the law brings divine wrath on people, Romans 4, 13 to 15. It animates sin, Romans 7, 8 to 9. It's associated with sin and death, Romans 8, 2 to 4. It's terminated in Christ, Romans 10, 4 to 6. It brings the curse, Galatians 3, 12 to 14. It imprisons and holds captive, Galatians 3, 21 to 24. In contrast to the spirit who animates, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter of the law kills. For many, if not most evangelicals, these texts in Paul are determinative, not only for their disposition toward Paul's view of the law, but also for how they read the New Testament as a whole. These provide the lenses in the glasses of many people with which the whole Bible is read. 
and certainly for how they read the First Testament. They give no thought to the hermeneutical difficulties such readings pose. This is a real problem. These difficulties appear at many levels. First, this reading forces them to minimize, if not dismiss, Paul's positive statements about the law elsewhere. Paul instructed his protege, Timothy, but we know that the Torah is good, provided one uses it legitimately. First uh, Timothy 1.8. And to the Romans, he wrote, so the Torah is certainly holy, the command is holy and righteous and good. And later, in the same context, he adds, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Romans 7.16. Of course, this is what we would expect Paul to say, given his Pharisaic training at the feet of Gamaliel, Acts 5, 34 and 22, verse 3. He was trained especially in the Torah, and that training taught him that the Torah is good. So this view of hearing only the negative things he has to say about the law forces us to minimize these other positive statements. Second, taken at face value, these statements fly in the face of the Torah in which Paul was schooled, as well as the face of psalmists effusive in their praise of Torah. If we read the book of Deuteronomy, which was the original Torah of Moses, if we read it without reference to Paul's polemics against Judaisms of his day, we find it to be a gospel book from the beginning to end. If you have never read Paul or heard preaching on Paul and you picked up the book of Deuteronomy for the first time or you heard somebody reading it expositorily for the first time, you would never conclude that this book is primarily a book of law. No, this is prophetic preaching, evangelistic preaching, passionate preaching at its absolute finest. This is exhibited most dramatically in chapter 6, verses 20 to 25. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the covenant stipulations and the ordinances and the judgments that the Lord our God has commanded you? Well, that's a great question. How would you answer that if people ask you, what's the point of all the laws in the First Testament, in the Torah? What's the point? Well, the reformers had three answers to that. The, the laws were there to give civil authorities guidelines. The laws were there for guidance for believers. And the laws were there to prove our undoing and drive us to Christ. Because nobody can keep them anyway. Luther spent a lot of time on number three. The interesting thing is, the Torah never spends any time on number three. In fact, the First Testament never spends any time there. It's the opposite. It treats the, 
the, the, gospel, the, the law as the supreme gift to Israel. Well, what Moses is imagining, again, this is not a legal text. It's the way preachers talk. He's setting up a hypothetical scenario. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the covenant? That's a great question for a son to ask. I'm sure some of you have had those conversations at the supper table, warm conversations with your parents. Or your, those of you who are, uh, have children, you've had them with your kids. I'll never forget when our son was in high school. He was a swimmer, and his closest friends were the swimmers, and they spent a lot of time together. And one supper, uh, as far as I know, only two of them were Christians, and they were the divers on the team, and, but the swimmers with whom they were competing in, in, in the water in those lanes all the time. I don't think there were any believers among them. But in any case, one time at the supper table, we were having a conversation about how we live and why we do something. And suddenly he blurted out, why do we have to live in such a prehistoric family? What would you say? You know, on the one hand, the tone of the question was all wrong. But the question was so right. What would you say? He obviously saw that the way we were running our affairs in our house was quite different from the way they were running them in his friends' houses. What would you say? Well, this is what the youth pastor says we should do. Or this is the way my parents brought us up, so that's how we're going to do it. This is how the book says we do it, and this is what we're going to do. Well, what do we say here? For us, it was a great opportunity for gospel. And that's what we have here. What's the point of the laws? I used to feel sorry for the Israelites. Saddled with a law that was such a burden that they couldn't keep anyhow. What kind of God would give you a law like that? Well, here we go. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us. I didn't ask about that. I asked about the law. Shh. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against God, Egypt and against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there. That he, I didn't ask about all this stuff. I asked about the law. Son, I'll get there. I've got a few other things to talk about first. And he's, he might, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these ordinances. Oh, now we're finally getting there. To fear, that is, trust the Lord our God for our good always, that he might ensure that we live as we are this day. Really? That's the point of the law? For our good? That we might live and we will be counted as righteous if we are careful to do this entire command before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Did you hear that? What's the point of the law? 
It's for our good. It's that we might fear the Lord and that we might live. According to Moses, this was the greatest gift anybody could have, the offer of life. Indeed, according to Moses, outsiders considered Israel's possession of the Torah as an unprivileged, uh, unparalleled privilege, a gift that made them the envy of the world in Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. So keep the ordinances and judgments that the Lord has revealed to us, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. When they hear all these ordinances, they will say, wow! If I had written this text, I would have written it quite differently. If I had written it 20 years ago, that is. I would have written something like this. When they hear all these ordinances, they will say, Oy vey. What a pity that they are saddled with all of these laws that you can't keep anyhow. I used to feel so sorry for the Israelites. Burdened by the law. But look at what the outsiders are saying. These are outsiders, not Israelites. They will say, wow, what a wise and understanding people this is. For what great nation is it that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is it that has ordinances and judgments as righteous as this whole Torah that I'm setting before you today? Did you hear that? It makes Israel the envy of the world. We'll come back to that. But the interesting thing is that when the son asks, what's the point of the law? Moses' response is, you can't answer that question without giving them the gospel first. We were slaves in Egypt and the Lord got us out. And he's bringing us into the land. He didn't give us the law in Egypt so that as soon as we could say, we could check them all off. I'm keeping the law, therefore the Lord has got us out. No, 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 no. The call to salvation is always unconditional, always has been. No preconditions. God gave the law after he had redeemed them. This is not a way of earning salvation. This is a way of joyfully responding to the gift of salvation by by happily and gratefully doing the will of God and knowing that will of God is the highest privilege imaginable. With his provision of a written copy of his oral presentation in 31, 9 to 13, Moses provided his people with a resource to ensure perpetual access to life via the Torah. Read the Torah that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear the Lord, that they may listen, that they may live. The Torah is the key to life. Well, if you don't like it in Deuteronomy, let's go to Psalms. We could start, actually we should start with Psalm 14. The last half of Psalm 14. Uh, These texts are embarrassing to many of us. Psalm, uh, Psalm 19, I said 14. 
that's embarrassing too. Look at, listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More desirable than gold, yea, than fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. What? Really? Or... Let's go to Psalm 119, an ode to Torah. 176 verses, each one devoted to celebrating the gift of Torah. Some of these are really embarrassing. Look, for example, 119 verse 47. I, I find my delight in your commands, which I love. 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commands, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Or 97. Uh, oh, how I love your Torah. It's my meditation all day. Did you get that? I mentioned yesterday, I think it was in the evening, that nobody in the Bible ever says, I love God. Not once. Or, I love you, Lord. But here you have it. I love the Torah. Or, verse 127, I love your commands above gold, above fine gold. Or, verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Verse 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your Torah. My soul, and then 167, my soul keeps your stipulations. I love them exceedingly. <laughs> To many evangelicals, these songs, these texts are an extreme embarrassment. We so glibly say, I love you, Lord, but we hate the Torah. Do you see how upside down that world is? I was at Moody Church one time, Erwin Lutzer, the pastor, good Saskatchewan man. He was the pastor, and every uh, fall and every spring, he used to host at the church a meeting for local pastors, and he asked me, asked me one time to come and talk about preaching the gospel from Deuteronomy, which is such an oxymoron to some people. Well, I, I started that presentation by reading these verses, and a whole bunch like this, and then I just stood back and I said, you know, for many of us, these verses are an embarrassment. We don't know what to do with them because we hear Paul's words ringing in our ears. And then when I was done and he, he came up to chair the discussion after, he says, that's exactly where I've always been. I have not known what to do with those texts. How is that? Because the life the Torah promises here flies in the face of the death-dealing effect of the law declared by Paul. And while we sing, free from the law, happy condition, they sang, how I love your Torah, oh happy condition. Here I find my life. 
The synoptic gospels offer slightly different variations of Jesus' affirmation of the Torah in response to his detractors. Here is Matthew's account. In, in Matthew chapter 22, 35 and following, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they were, they were clapping. They were, these groups were always in competition. But they got together, and one of them, an expert in the Torah, your text reads law, should be Torah, um, tested him with a question. Teacher, which is the great command in the Torah? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and most important command. And the second part is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Torah is full is, and the prophets are subsumed under these two commands. Notice what Jesus did not say. He said, you don't have to worry about the law anymore. I've given you, I'm giving you an alternative. That one didn't work. Try this. No, it's the opposite. He said, it all boils down to this one thing. Love. Or in Romans, Paul does the same thing. He's exactly on the same page. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves others has fulfilled the Torah. Really. For the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commands are summed up in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love signifies fulfilling the, of the Torah. It does. But of course, now we have to talk about the word love. What does love mean? You know, to most of us, it's a romantic Valentine's Day word. Have nice, pleasant, pink thoughts about somebody. You know, and in the church, we often hear, if we'd only love each other, and we think that means get along. No, it doesn't. It means that, but it's so much more. The Hebrew word love, ahav, and the Greek word agapao are fabulous terms. To us, love is primarily a dispositional expression, a positive, if not romantic, feeling toward another person. But this is not the case in Scripture where love, while not without passion, is always active. To the extent that Abraham Malamat argues, we should never translate Hebrew ahav with a single English word, i.e. love. Not simply love, but it's always active. Demonstrate love. Act out love. Love. Indeed, as the Hebrew Bible uses Ahav and the Septuagint, the New Testament use Agapao, love is, and here is my definition, covenant commitment demonstrated in action for the well-being and in the interest of the other person. 
Once we realize this, it becomes perfectly clear how Jesus could reduce all the covenant stipulations to demonstrated love for God and demonstrated love for one's neighbor. But let, before I go there, let me talk about a text as simple as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal... I read the New Testament once in a while too. There's really wonderful devotional uh, material in the New Testament. But we tend to think that that verse is about how much God loves us. He loves us so much that he gave us his son. But I don't think that's what it is at all. Well, maybe that's too strong. Primarily. The issue is not how much God loves us, but how God loves us. And this is where the Christian Standard Bible has it exactly right. For God demonstrated his love for the world in this. He gave his son. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And don't forget the anniversary. Is that what he says? No. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In Deuteronomy, love is always active. Love and serve. Love and obey. Love and walk in his ways. It's always that way. And if you, and if you want to look at uh, Jesus' reduction of all the commands of the First Testament to one. Come, come on, work with me. Here we go. We had it. Anybody home? What is going on here? We thought we had problems of yesterday solved. There we go. This. This is the Decalogue. You call it the Ten Commandments. The Bible never does, so I don't either. These are the ten words. Ten principles of covenant relationship. And as you know, the first principles are about our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not carry the, wear the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then uh, keep the Sabbath. And the rest are all horizontal. It's brilliant how Jesus interprets this. It all boils down to, if you are covenantly committed to God, you will always live in his interests and with his reputation in mind. If you are covenantly committed to one another, you will always live with their interests in mind before your own. Greater love is no one than this, that he gives his life for the next person, so that your life is always more important than mine. If we would live by that, our our rule books, our legal books in the courthouses would be very small. Because if we look out for the next person before we looked out for ourselves, Chicago wouldn't have all the problems they've got down there. But it's a very problematic world because the covenantal ethic is missing. Well, it's not only in the Decalogue. But the Decalogue is simply the seed that, that the Lord plants as a, a, as a summary statement of the principles of covenant relationship. They are then fleshed out in what we call the Book of the Covenant, Exodus uh, 20, uh, 1 to 23, 19, 
That's the book of the covenant. And then the handbook or in guidebook on holiness, Leviticus 17 to 26. And finally, in the Torah of Moses, Deuteronomy 5 to 26 and 28. It's all the same ethic. It is all the, the ethic of covenant love from beginning to end. And what Moses has done is simply given a, a thousand illustrations of what this looks like. So it's not a matter of just keeping laws. When you build a house, be sure you put a parapet around the roof. That's not a law on architecture. It's a law, it, it's, it's a plea for heads of households to assume responsibility for the well-being, health of everybody who lives with you. That's love. And the whole thing works that way. Well, uh, this is the law of love. This standard interpretation, the standard interpretation which reads the Scriptures backwards and tries to bend Moses to fit Paul, raises all sorts of questions that uh, uh, just uh, e eliminates the gospel in the First Testament. I must return to the disconnect in many people's minds between Moses and the psalmists and Jesus' positive disposition toward the Torah and Paul's. If Paul meant literally what he says about the laws, Torah, he should have been stoned. Did you hear that? Moses says in Deuteronomy 13, anybody who teaches another way is anathema to God. And, Mo and Paul actually picks up that curse in Galatians and applies it to anybody who disagrees with him and preaches another gospel. Well, if, if Paul meant what we think he meant, he should have been stoned because he disagrees fundamentally apparently, with Moses. But if Paul, if Moses and Paul were both inspired and their writings authoritative, as Orthodox Christians believe, God appears to speak out of both sides of his mouth and maximally to con contradict himself. This is intolerable. God never makes a mistake. God never reveals in an early period what turns out to be false in the end. He never retracts what he has done and said that was a mistake or that was a failure or that didn't work. Let's try something else. And he can't have Moses saying the Torah is the key to life and then Paul saying the Torah leads inevitably to death. You can't have that. They're both inspired by the same God. What are we going to do? Well, I think the answer to this, in wrestling with Paul's negative statements about the law, we must consider that he views himself to be in the train of prophets that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18. But we must also consider, and I think this is the key, we must consider Paul's negative statements in Romans and Galatians especially in, within the polemical context out of which they arose and which they address. 
In both epistles, Romans and Galatians, Paul is dealing with Judaizers, the circumcision party, Jewish believers in Jesus who insisted that to be granted full fellowship within the community of Christ's followers, Gentile believers must accept the external marks of Judaism, circumcision, kosher food, Sabbath observance as defined by the Pharisees, purification rituals, and the whole business. But in keeping with the decision of the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, Paul insisted that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to be part of the family of God. He insisted that the past ethnocentric preoccupation of, of uh, uh, or the ethnocentric preoccupation of Judaism is the problem here. Now that the covenant community has been reconstituted and the ethnic boundaries have been sprung, these Judaistic practices have become superfluous for Gentile believers in Jesus. I don't think Paul ever expected Jewish believers in Jesus to give up this. But the point is, you can't make Gentiles do them. They don't have to become Jews. And he pushed it farther, arguing that by insisting on this requirement for Gentiles, the Judaizers were imposing on them the law-based culture from which, they, from which he had been weaned while in Arabia, Galatians 1, 13 to 14. To make works the basis of entrance into the community of faith is to put the cart before the horse. You know that farm metaphor. As he illustrated in his analogy, allegory involving Hagar, Sinai, and Sarah, and Jerusalem in Galatians 4. To insist that Gentiles keep these laws as a precondition to a saving relationship with God is to assume that Israel's life began at Sinai. And unfortunately, that is the problem with many in Judaism. They start at Sinai. They've never left Egypt. And that's the problem. They have the cart before the horse. The revelation of laws happened after the rescue and represents a response to salvation, not a precondition to salvation. Uh, the spirit of Judaism of the Second Temple period was a far cry from the spirit of covenant faith, theology, ethics, and whatever else promoted by Moses in the Torah. The problem in Judaism is illustrated in the third century discussion among Jewish rabbis. The Jerusalem Talmud cites the works of Rabbi Hiya Bar Abba in his commentary on Jeremiah 16.11. Rabbi Huna and Rabbi Yirmiyah said in the name of Rabbi Hiyah bar Abba, it is written, Jeremiah 16, 11, they have left me and my Torah they have not observed. That's the complaint. God is talking. They have left me and my Torah they have not observed. And here's the rabbi's response. If only they would have left me and kept my Torah. Did you hear that? That's exactly the problem. They have idolized the Torah, put it on the throne, and God is off. This reflects the problem of Second Temple Judaism. 
taking the psalmist references to love for and delight in the Torah literally. Jewish commitment to the Torah, both written and oral, had supplanted commitment to Yahweh. The hypocrisy of the Sadducees and Pharisees Fencing the Torah with endless regulations, with particular attention to external markers of identity, had robbed Judaism of both the heart and the spirit of Abrahamic and Mosaic faith. Jesus alludes to the problem in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and common, you have but have neglected the weightier matters of Torah, justice and mercy and faithfulness. This, these ought, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. At this point, Jesus probably had in mind, he probably had in mind Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 11, 1, which opens with a question. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? <laughs> now, if we were asking that question, what did God require of Israel? We'd say, keep the laws. But it's interesting how, how Moses answers the question. He gives three answers. First answer, the Lord requires to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to demonstrate love for him, to serve the Lord your God with your whole inner being and with your whole body, and to keep the commands and ordinances which I am charging you today. I, you know, the Decalogue is ten terms because of ten fingers on your hands so you can memorize it. Here we've got five and I think it's also because we've got five fingers. And he starts with the first principle is fearing the Lord. That means trusting awe. The second one, walking in his ways. The third one, loving him, demonstrating love for him. The third one, fourth one, serving him. And the fifth one, oh, keep the laws. And if these represent the fingers of your hand, you know that if there's any finger you can do without, it's the little one. You can cut that one off and get along tolerably well. You definitely, what separates us from most animals is this opposable thumb. This is the first principle of covenant life. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's where he starts. But the interesting thing is where he puts keeping the commands. It's at the end. It's at the end. Because if you're doing these other things, we would have put that here. The, the Judaizers would have put that here. But if you've got all the other things, that commands will happen. They will happen. Not as a matter of duty, but as a, as a matter of delight and joy and expression of covenant love. Well, I must end this. You're tired of me, and you are anxious to get to your class, to more important things. But so what? After all this harangue, so what? Why is the recovery of the First Testament important for evangelical faith? My friends, we need to pray. Oh, I should have given you the, the other answers he gives. Circumcise it for your hearts. Moses never says anything about physical circumcision, not once. And he never does anything about physical circumcision. He would have been right with Paul, or Paul was right with Moses. <laughs> and then answer three, Yahweh, your God, you shall serve him, you shall, uh, you shall fear him, you shall serve to him, you shall cling and by his name. And then everything is in place. You got it right. But as we look ahead, uh, we need to ask, where does this leave us? 
We need to pray that our eyes would be open to the unity and progressive nature of revelation and to the grace of God as the driving motif in everything. God never gave the law as the way to earn salvation. He saved first, and then he revealed this law to the people as a way of saying thank you to God. That makes it a supreme gift. But the history of Revelation is organic. This is one plant, one tree that God is producing, yielding that beautiful flower. Actually, plants don't live for the flowers. They live to produce seed that will continue the species. And that's how we should live too. And there is no place at which this plant is not this plant. When it comes out of the ground, it's a sunflower. Uh, well, when you put it in the ground, it's a sunflower seed. It comes out sunflower leaves, sunflower stem, sunflower flower. It's always a sunflower. It's one and that's the way the scriptures are. And all of the covenants, they all fit together. Uh, we need to be aware that this is a single story. But we have this sense in our mind that there are two different stories. I've sometimes played with my students and asked them, given them a, a pie piece like this, and told them, write down, label each piece of pie for one characteristic of God in the New Testament. And it's interesting what they say. God is faithful. God is patient. God is forgiving. God is merciful. God is, um, come on, work with me. Kind. God is gracious. God. That's the God of the New Testament. But you give them a, the same piece of pie with seven pieces and ask them, label this according to the God of the Old Testament. I use that word intentionally. And here's what you get. God is wrathful. God is awesome. Something happened here in the conversion to the other computer. God is righteous. God is just. God is holy. God is vengeful. God is scary. Intolerant. This is how people view God of the First Testament. It's a problem. Where'd they get that? What they should do is go to uh, Exodus chapter 36, verses 4 to 7, and you will see a totally different picture. It sounds just like the New Testament. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives every kind of sin. Ah, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Seven expressions. Only one is negative. Come on, work with me. Here you go. What does that text say? God is faithful. God is patient. God is forgiving. God is merciful. God is holy. God is gracious. And God is bound. That holy one, that's the only one that fits our stereotype. So that when Jesus is declared to be the Word made flesh, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's shorthand for this. Grace and truth. Chesed emeth. Jesus is the embodiment of this. This is the God of the First Testament. This is the God we serve. This. It's hard for us to see this. 
at a midwinter retreat a couple of years ago, I was asked to talk about why do Christians need to read the, 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 the Old Testament? That was their request. I changed it to First Testament. I started by reading from Leviticus chapters 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> Boring texts on eight or nine different kinds of sacrifices. I read it as boringly as we always read. And then when I was done, 250 people there, I asked, did anybody hear any gospel here? Not a single person heard a gospel. Even though nine times in that text, I, it reads, thus the priest shall make atonement for his sin and he will be forgiven. That's the gospel. It is there. They had it. They enjoyed the same forgiveness we do. If only our eyes were opened to seeing it when it's there. The First Testament didn't come alive for me until my eyes were attuned. That's a mixing a metaphor. My ears are attuned. <laughs> my eyes had the lenses that allowed me to see the grace. It's everywhere, everywhere, on every page. And you will find it there if you look. People come to me and they say, I've never seen that before. I say, well, you haven't looked. That is usually the problem. We have such prejudice against the First Testament that we don't even take the time to look let alone taking deep time. My encouragement to you is ask the Lord to open up the treasures of His Word to reveal to you His love and His grace in all of Scripture. And it's amazing how they will come to life for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in Jesus Christ, your Son. Once and for all, after 2,000 years of speaking. And now we have it. We have it in your scriptures. We pray that you would give us a love for your word like the true saints of the old had. And give us a passion to know your heart and your mind that we might live for the praise of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. May God be with you.